I want to read tonight a couple of brief excerpts from talks of Master Kripal Singh. Both with slight difference in perspective between them, they both sort of carry on the things we were talking about this morning about the importance of love. The first is something I've read many times before, um, and I'll probably read it many times more, uh, in which Master is reminiscing about his days as a disciple and his first meeting with Bibi Hardevi and her family. And he interweaves that with, in a very interesting and very beautiful way, something always struck me with the words of Christ from the farewell discourses in the Gospel of John, which take up the, uh, I think it's the 12th, 13th, no, the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of the Gospel of John. And uh, Master, uh, as he quotes these words, and it keeps coming, it's really woven in and out. Um, what he's, his general thing, what he's saying, the story that he tells from the past of his own experience, and the words of Christ, um, the words of Christ that he is saying, he said totally from memory. And you will see they're absolutely accurate from the King James Version. And he obviously had learned that whole section of the Gospel of John by heart, which has always influenced my feeling about those particular chapters. He says, all masters, whenever they came, said the same thing. The tenth guru of the six said, hear ye all, I tell you the truth, Irrespective of whether you belong to one religion or the other, that makes no difference. Through love alone, you can know God. All others also said the same thing. Those who do not know love cannot know God. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What did he say? And this is the first quote from the Farewell Discourses. And I know that Master did not read these because I was sitting on the floor about two feet in front of him taping this discourse. This was January 1964 at Mr. Connor's house in Washington, D.C. And I was watching him very closely. And he had no notes of any kind. What did he say? Christ, that is. I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you again. And throughout this section, of course, this comforter appears uh, very prominently. Now, the word for comforter, 
this is in Christian theology, this is the Holy Spirit. In my understanding, this is what Master called the Master Power. Okay? That aspect of God which is with us with us, you could say intimately with us or imminent in our presence, in our being, uh, throughout. And the word that is translated comforter in English, the Greek word is parakletos, which means, it has many meanings, comforter is one of them. The scholars differ on exactly what is meant, but most modern translations use something like advocate, or in other words, defense attorney, okay? It's like the master power is our advocate, our defense attorney. It protects us from the onslaughts of the law, that is to say the law of karma, of the negative power. This is a very important concept and uh, of the utmost importance, I think, that we grasp this. Master continues, if two men, four men, love the same man, that is a point for consideration. True love is where there is no question of competition. When there are two lovers of the same master, they compete. One says, I should be in front, and the other says, I should be in front. But love knows no duality, no competition, no anger, and no coming to the front. Just judge your love for the master. Why does all this conflict remain among the followers? Because they have not got real love, I tell you. If they've got real love, love knows no competition. Each one will be happy the more he can put his shoulders to the wheel for the same cause. Christ said further, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace will remain with you forever. Now, of course, I said these are the farewell discourses. These words, according to the Gospel of John, were spoken by Christ at the Last Supper. That is the last evening of his life. The following morning, later that night, he was arrested, put on trial, and the following morning um, at noon, he was crucified. So that's why they're called the farewell address. And he is saying that the comforter, that is the master power, will be, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance Whatsoever I have said unto you, peace I leave with you, my peace will remain with you forever. So Master says, as I told you, love knows no competition. When two followers of the same Master do not agree, one says, I am in the forefront, and the other says, I am in the forefront. What is the result? To me, apparently, such a follower has no love for the Master true love. He has love for the master for selfish motives. He wants to come near to him, to the forefront of him. So love is the remedy for all things. Love and all things shall be added unto you. 
That's the pity. We don't love. And then Christ said, As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. He loved his Master, his God. He said, I give you a new commandment, love one another. There we are wanting, I tell you. I have been pressing this point very much ever since I've come. This is the only remedy for all our ills. If one man goes ahead, it is his grace. In the beginning, I used to put in more time. I was transferred to Rawalpindi. The first day I was there, everybody knew it. A follower of the master, they were saying this and that thing. That even came to be known to Bibi Hardevi, who is sitting here. Taiji was sitting at master's feet. Bibi Hardevi, of course, was often called Taiji. And she was the wife of a uh, Rawalpindi jeweler named Rajaram. And they were both initiates of Sawan Singh. She never knew me before that. People said, well, he's here. He's a very great follower of the master. She said, what greatness lies in him? He puts in six hours a day in meditation. She said, all right, if he puts that in, then I'll put in six, seven hours, and then I'll meet him. Such like competition is good. You see, we want to eclipse others. We want to eclipse others by placing ourselves in the front. So she did not come to see me, I tell you, and Master was laughing very hard during this particular part of the talk, for months on end. When she put in six or seven hours a day, then she, along with her husband, came to see me. And only when? When my son died. I was quite jolly, and the doctor came in the night. He gave my son this and that thing. I told him, all right, give him whatever you wish. He has to go. Let him finish his give and take. At about midnight, he took the breath of death. He had a long period of vomiting and became cold. I had sent for the doctor, and when he came, he said, I'll give him some medicine and he'll be all right. But in the morning, my son was quite ready to go. The doctor said, oh, he now looks better all of a sudden. I said, wait outside, he's just going. So I looked at him and he passed away. At that time, everyone came to see me. I'm relating this to show how this family, Taiji and her husband, came in contact with me. She and her husband also met me, and they were wonderstruck. Your son has died, and you're quite jolly. It is not usual not to worry and to be like that. A lot of people came to visit, and they said somebody in the Sikh temple had said, Here's a true Sikh coming up. He's a credit to our religion. And her husband heard about it and thought, he must be a follower of my master. He never knew me before. He went and inquired about it, and it was so. He told him, look here, he's my brother who has been going and sitting at the feet of my master. So they came to pay me their condolences, and they were wonderstruck. What did I do? I gave them tea and this and that thing. So such like competition is good. 
Now, what one man does, others reflect on it. Put your shoulders to the wheel. The more one progresses, the better. Why are there all these conflicts? Because we do not love the Master, truly speaking. If anybody has become the beloved of the Master, is good. You should also become the beloved. See how the other one has become the beloved. Why does the Master love him? There must be a reason for it. Such like love knows no competition, no saying, why has the other man gone forward? Quietly and unknowingly, they are going on doing it. They won't show what they are doing. They'll go on and let others see for themselves. These are the things that are required. Christ said, love one another as I loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man may lay down his life. Love knows service and sacrifice for his friends. What did Christ say? Do you know? Ye are my friends. He did not want to make us slaves. Masters never make you a slave. The beauty of our master was that he addressed us very respectfully, very lovingly. A master never makes slaves of you. He makes you friends. And why? If you do whatsoever I command you, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what the Lord doeth, but I have called you my friends. For all things I have known of my Father, I have made known to you. Do you follow? There are some so-called masters, I tell you, who treat others like they're slaves, bought slaves. They make the best use of them. And I tell you, masters' conditions are very strong. Anyone who wants to take the service of his other disciple mates without the permission of the master, master turns away his face from him. We consider it jolly. Oh, everybody now loves me, serves me, gives me sacrifices. He gives me so many boons and donations. We shouldn't. Whenever you have to compare, make the comparison that if one man does more, you will do still more. If he does, say, four hours of meditation, you put in five hours. That's a good competition, is it not? But that we do not do. That is a pity. And this is the basic cause of all conflicts, of all differences of opinion. Formations are made when we are wanting in love, I tell you honestly. And the second section is from a talk given very, very much, uh, around the same time, January 1964. This talk was given at the Friends Meeting House on the occasion of the celebration of his birthday. And uh, again, this is a section that is very dear to me and which I have often read. And it's on the same general subject of the importance of love. Godhood is the birthright of every human being. Fortunately, we have that birthright. It is the grace of God. 
And the grace of God has further descended in that we have some desire, some yearning for God. It is to achieve him, to find him, that we have cared to join any school of thought or religion. It is possible through love alone to become God, I would say. The lover and the beloved both become one. Christ said, I and my Father are one. And St. Paul said, It is I, not now I, but it is Christ that lives in me. This is what is meant by the word gurumuk. Master is God in man, and a lover of the Master becomes a gurumuk. He becomes the guru, a God-man in man. This is the ultimate feat of love, and this is the easiest way. I remember a story that has just struck me. Lord Rama went into exile for 14 years. He went to the wilderness where many other yogis were living. There was one lady there of a very low caste. She heard that Lord Rama was coming into exile into the wilderness. And what did she do? She thought, Rama will be coming and he may be barefooted so that the thorns might prick his feet. So she simply cleared the way of all thorns. And then she thought in the heart of her heart, when he comes, what shall I offer him? In the wilderness, there is no food to eat, but there are berries everywhere. She began to pluck berries and taste them. Those that were sweet, she put in her pocket. So she kept all those tasted berries with her. Each of the yogis who was living there thought that perhaps he was the greatest of the yogis and that Lord Rama would be coming to his cottage. Mind that this I-hood, I know better, I am better than all these others, is the last weakness that leaves a man, even the so-called masters. But where did Rama go? When he went to the wilderness, he met the lady who had collected the berries. And what did he do? She offered him those berries that were tasted, and he ate them. Love knows no law. Love is above all. The yogis living there had been doing penances for hundreds of years. Then he went to them, and they came up to him and asked, Will you kindly grace our cottage? There was a pond of water where they lived that was full of small insects. There was no other source of water. And they asked Lord Rama if he would just clean the pond of all dirt and insects by his grace by putting his feet into the water. It was generally thought that if a genuinely holy person put his feet into what we would call polluted or contaminated water, that it would clear it up. He said, no, I think you are the greatest of the yogis. Why don't you put in your feet? For they must be better able to clear up the pond. They did, and the water remained the same. Then they forced him. Kindly put your feet into the water, and all insects will go. So, all right, it's up to you. He also put his feet into the pond, but the insects were still there. Lord Rama had to demonstrate the greatness of love. True love does not know any show, mind that. He said, I think it would be best if you called that Bilni. Bilni is a very low caste woman. Uh, 
and let her put her feet into the water. Then she came and put her feet into the water, and the pond was cleared. These are instances to show that love is a great miracle. God is love. Through love only you become one with God. You can become one with him whom you love. As you think, so you become. And there is, of course, a great, the story is tremendously significant and interesting in every way, to me anyway. Um, it is, of course, the Bielni, the low-caste woman, uh, and the Bielni is basically an untouchable member of the forest tribe, uh, which were not part of Vedic civilization at all. So would be held in very low repute, a very low opinion by these yogis who would be very aware of their own status. And of course also she was a woman, and the yogis undoubtedly, uh, in fact Master said at one point that this was also a factor. So her, ta her tasting the berries and putting them in her pocket was not only a violation of sanitary laws by, from our point of view, but it was a violation, a very horrible violation of very strict caste laws. And in the, this, this incident is part, the Ramayana, the great Hindu epic of Lord Rama, of which this story is a part, was dramatized by Tulsidas, who was a great master of Saint Mat, uh, 16th century or thereabouts. And he wrote the Ramayana in Hindi, um, the Ramcharitramanas, or the holy lake of the acts of Rama. And he also uh, dramatized it, called the Ramlila. And every year in October, at the time of the Ramlila, this play, including this incident, is dramatized all over North India. And uh, when I was there in 1969, Master had us all go see it. He didn't go himself, but he sent us. There were about, I think, 15 Westerners at the ashram at the time. And he sent us, and he sent Cuckoo, the Princess Narendra, along with us. And uh, he told us he wanted us to go and learn from it. And it, I loved it. Okay, this, this, it's like an opera. It's all sung. And uh, they, of course, I, I later saw many, uh, not many, but I saw other versions too, and they differ a lot. But the one that we saw that night remains in my memory as one of the greatest theatrical experiences I've ever been present at. And I have seen a lot of, of great drama, I assure you. And this was incredible. And at this point, when um, the uh, this story is happening, when the Bilni offers Lord Rama the berries, and he takes them, his brother Lakshman, who is standing there, who is, uh, represents Orthodox Hinduism, is horrified. He can't bear it. He, ah, he turns his back on it. He, he turns completely around, and he won't even look at them. Lord Rama doesn't mind, you know, he just happily accepts the contaminated so-called berries. And then, of course, uh, showing the insects, the thing about the insects in the pond, the contamination, the pollution, or whatever. Um, again, this was, the, the yogis couldn't do it, 
Lord Rama couldn't do it, but here's this low caste woman, totally despised by all of these high people, and she can do it. And the reason is, as Master points out, and why Lord Rama arranged this whole thing, is because she was a lover. She was motivated totally by love. And this is a problem. An incident that I experienced in 1965 on my first trip to India at the time of the World Conference of Religions that was that Master presided over at that time. Uh, there were a lot of yogis and holy men as well as uh, clergymen from the West and people like that, professors and so forth that were delegates. And after the conference was over, Master had a big tea party at um, Sawan Ashram for all the delegates. So there was, it was just full of people, and all these yogis were there, swamis, Muslim peers, everyone was there. A lot of costumes, colors. And there was this yogi, Surya Dev, whom I had noticed um, from before because he seemed to have a lot of power. He had shaved head. And he was a little creepy. I was a little afraid of him. But I was also, I, I felt that he had a lot of power. And I, I was watching him and something, I don't know what, but something rubbed him the wrong way during the tea party and he totally lost his temper. And here's this yogi, he just basically erupted. And he's foaming at the mouth, literally. The only time in my life I ever saw anybody really foaming at the mouth. He was so angry. And it's like all the people around him were moving back. You know, it was like this big space was developing between him and everybody else. And he was just... And I am no stranger to temper loss. I have a bad temper myself and I've lost it many times but I've never seen anything like this anyway master saw what was going on he came over to him he walked straight up to him he put his arm around him on one arm and with the other he put his hand on his face like this and he just came down like this right down his body down to his waist and as he did that, it was like all the anger drained out. It was, really, it was like he opened up a faucet and the water came out. And when his, by the time his hand got down to his waist, he was totally calm and docile. And Master hugged him and just sent him off with a blessing, and uh, he was fine. So I was. this was really something to see, I will tell you, the whole thing. And I was really um, stunned by it. The next day I asked Master, I said, um, how can, why, how is it that someone, obviously this guy is uh, a yogi of some power. I mean, I can see that. He has some advancement. How could a yogi who has achieved so much um, fail so badly? And Master said basically what he says here, that... Um, the sense of ego, of selfhood, of I-hood is the last thing to go. And if we develop power before we lose that, before we rise above that, then it goes to serve that. And anything is possible. And then whatever we do, we're doing it under the influence of the ego or the self, but the power that we have developed is there, and so we're infinitely more dangerous 
and things are infinitely more possible than they were otherwise. So it's a very important, very important point. Uh, and this is the point he was making with these yogis. So, you become one with him whom you love, as you think, so you become. But still we have not seen God. How can we love? We can only love one whom we have seen, who is at the same level at which we are working. The Mohammedan scriptures tell us each man must have some beloved. What sort of beloved? Not one that leaves you but is ever with you. One who does not leave you in this life and in the life hereafter. And who can he be? It is the God in him, the comforter, as we remember, the advocate, the master power, the Holy Spirit, does not leave us, regardless of what the bodies do. That is there. Christ gave an example to show this. So long as the branches are embedded in the fruit-growing tree, they give fruit. But when they are cut off, they cannot give fruit. This is, by the way, from the same discourse that he was quoting from earlier in the other talk. Then he said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. So long as you remain embedded in me, you will bear forth ample fruit. Do you see? This is what is meant by love. Hafiz, a great saint, tells us, O oh God, people call me Hafiz, but I am no longer Hafiz. I am he who lives in me. So, for men, for human beings, God becomes man and has love for his beings. In that man who has become one with God, God becomes man. God in man and man in God. This is the word I have given in this message to. And the message was uh, his birthday message of that year, 1964, in which he made this point very specifically. And who was he? My master. I saw him. He was man in God. To love master is to love God, the God in him, not the son of man. Mind that there is no sadhana, no spiritual practice greater than love. All outer performances, rites and rituals, and the saying of prayers are only meant for love. If you have developed love, everything is there. There is no higher law than love. And there is no goal beyond love. Because love is God. And God is love. In this way, God and love are identical. For the one who has divine love has reached God. He is one with him. That is why I said here that what the masters taught in their lives is a religion above all religions. They gave out that very love. No amount of intellect can fathom God. No amount of austerity can enable you to attain God. Only when one loves him and loses oneself in him can one find him. It is only by the feet of love that you can lose yourself when the two become one. And there are no other means, there is no other way back to God except through love.
And I think if we remember this, now again, uh, we often confuse, I think, we put last things first. Uh, if the Master says that love is the foundation of everything, the love that we receive from him is what enables us to love back. It is he who first loved us. Our love is reciprocal, the Master says. Um, and if his love for us if we are totally receptive to it, or even somewhat receptive to it, then that comes through us and spreads out to all those around us. This is why uh, the Master says that, um, you know, the dear ones of the initiates are also uh, affected by the Master or come under his protection because they love us, but our love is for the Master. So we are open to the masters, so their love for us goes right through us, as it were, and goes to him, and is counted as love for him. And this, in turn, enables him to take care of them. This is true of animals, too, our pets. Um, anyone who loves us, that love goes through us to the master and is experienced by him as though that other person or animal uh, is loving him. And that enables him to do what is his business, that is to say, to love and forgive as many and bring them home as many people as possible. And that is why I've often said that the supreme duty of the initiate is to be as lovable as possible. Because the more lovable we are, the more people will love us. The more they love us, the more that they, they will be loving the master and the master will be able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, which is to bring as many people home as he can. And uh, it's really, you know, quite a vision, this vision that comes with the path. If we think about it, uh, the master comes on earth, um, he's a human being, but he has really totally, completely, fully, and perfectly opened himself up to the love of God, so that whenever we come into his presence, we experience, it isn't just that we feel it or that we are aware of it, but we experience, we participate in that love of God that is coming through him. And this is what, when we talk about charging in the master's presence, this is what we are talking about. That's why Samhain Singh says that it is incumbent on the disciple to love the master, but it is incumbent on the master to be an embodiment of love. If the master is not an embodiment of love, that is to say, if he is not lovable, if, if we don't love him, then he is not functioning as a master from our point of view. So the master has to be love incarnate. And then we have to be open to that, and in fact we are open to that, everyone is open to that to some extent, maybe very little, but um, the more we are, the more we can benefit, obviously. And it is also, you know, the Master doesn't just come for initiates. This is something, we find this implicit in uh, a lot of the writings, but Sanchi was very specific about this. Uh, he said, 
that whenever anyone prays to God and the master who is on the physical plane at the time, he hears that prayer. And it is he who responds. Because in where the God of love functions on the physical plane in the lower worlds through the person of the living master. So that this is true. This is why uh, Sao and Singh um, suffered so much during the War of Independence in India. The, uh, not the War of Independence, but the War of Partition between India and Pakistan after independence was granted. Um, because he was hearing the agony and the suffering of all the people involved. And uh, Sanjeev, there were many instances after Mrs. Gandhi was assassinated, um, Sanchi suffered very greatly. And it, it was, I mean, there were a number of stories of him having turned up in places and uh, people were saved that were otherwise in great danger. And even if they weren't, even if they were damn badly hurt or even killed, the fact is that he was still aware of them and giving them whatever help they could handle. And that's the, the Master's is there for everybody, including especially sinners. And that is a, uh, a thing that is hard to grasp, but, and I will get into that more tomorrow, but uh, the fact is, and this gets back to King Janak and the uh, residents of hell also, um, that the master comes for those people who need him the most. And this is sort of the watchword of the way the path works, which if we look, I said earlier that seva is given to those who need it most. And the fact remains, this is what Jesus meant when he said, I have not come for those who are healthy, but those who are sick, because that's what doctors are for, right? They are for sick people. And therefore, the greater the need of the person, the greater the yearning, the greater the longing. In many people, if this is not fully understood on a conscious level, this will express itself in negative ways. And people will be very antisocial. They will be cruel. They will be uh, vicious even, maybe. And yet, what is that? The Master knows, God knows what is going on in those people, and they know what kind of inner turmoil and agony produces that kind of, of reaction, of um, uh, behavior. And, you know, general, it's one of the ways in which karma works is that people generally give out what they have received. If somebody has been treated with cruelty all his life, what does that person know? You know, he will treat other people with cruelty. It's, you know, it's a well-known psychological observation that people who have been abused uh, physically or sexually or however, psychologically as children will grow up to uh, do exactly the same thing to people when they get older. And this is obvious working of the law of karma. As you reap, as you sow, so shall you reap. But it also works the other way too. As you reap, so shall you sow. We give out what we have. We have what we have been given. Now the masters know this, and this is why they don't judge anybody. You know, they don't send anybody to hell. 
they take people, they rescue people from hell. They don't condemn anybody. They take everybody where they find them and they take him by the hand and lead him or her into the presence of God. There are many instances in the new biography of Kripal that was just published, uh, partly written by the same Princess Narendra that I mentioned earlier, who, by the way, translated for those of us who were sitting near her, including me, when we were at the Ram Leela that night, very beautifully, so that I was able to follow the whole play completely. Um, and when we got home, by the way, Master uh, was waiting for us back at the ashram, and he spent about a half an hour going over what we had seen and the significance of it and the importance of it. And uh, he talked especially about that incident and mentioned a number of other uh, parts of it too. Um, in that biography, there are a number of stories of Master initiating uh, bandits, murderers. Um, Sanchi will t tells a story which I may read tomorrow about one time when Master initiated a prostitute uh, and would and did not initiate a very respectable gentleman who uh, was even vegetarian and so forth. And there is a reason for all this, which we don't necessarily know, but the, f the fact is that um, the masters understand what a person needs and they are not afraid to approach that person from the level of what they need. And they can see right to the heart of the matter and they give the person what uh, that person needs from the point of view of being seen from the level of the inmost heart of hearts. So it's a great thing what the masters do. And the other thing we should, we really should bear in mind, um, people, is that the master really never goes, okay? That's the name of one chapter in The Rescue, by the way, the master never goes. And uh, master makes that plain here. If, we, if the master can go, we shouldn't love him. He said we should love only someone who doesn't leave us. Well, the body goes, that's right. But the master, both Kripal and Sanji and Sawan Singh also have made it very clear that the master is not the body. Because we are bodies and we relate on the level of bodies to each other and to the master. We assume, we, we cannot help but think of him as the body. But he's not the body, he's the comforter, the advocate, the master power. That never goes. And I will tell you, because the master is outside of time, then take it as a given fact that anything he has ever given us, he is still giving us. It is not that the master smiled at us once, and that was then. That's not the way of it. If the master smiled at us once and that was then, he is smiling at us now and this is now. He is continually doing that because there's no time about it. That's the definition of eternity is that it's outside of time. So whatever he has given us, if he gave us, ever gave us prashad, he is still giving us prashad. 
whatever, the coat that I am wearing, Masanchi gave me, okay? And when I wear it, I am in his presence, all right? I feel him around me. He is still giving it to me. It isn't a thing that happened in the past. It's a thing that is happening continuously. It is always happening. And that's the way it is with everything that the Master does or has done. Any smile that he ever gave, any joke that he ever made with us, any time he ever hugged us, any time uh, he looked at us graciously, any time he rebuked us, God forbid, which I know he has done many times to many people, including especially me, uh, he is still rebuking us. And in his rebuke also, I... I've often told how when I first met Sanchi the first time, after when I responded to Master's orders and went to find him, that um, Sanchi responded to my coming by rebuking me. And uh, it, not that he didn't, I didn't deserve it, I deserved it very royally, but the, the thing was, of course, that I had been to visit other people and they had uh, treated me as though I was royalty or something. And I go to see Sachi and uh, I'm getting rebuked. But the point is that it was just like Master Kripal would do it. And it is not, it's not a question of, okay, Master Kripal did it and now Sachi is doing it. It's like there was one rebuke that was happening always. And this was a part of it. And uh, it, was, it was like I was so able to see Kripal in that and to recognize him as he rebuked me. There was nothing that could have been done that was more obvious what was going on. Anyway, this is the point, people, that we, we never lose what the Master gives us. Never. We cannot. We can perhaps think we've lost it. We can turn our back on it. We can uh, think in terms of time and past and he's gone and, and that thing happened and it'll never happen again and like that. We have that option, but it isn't true. It's part of maya or illusion. It's the world as it seems to be, not the world as it is. The world as it is, the master is the son of eternity he is outside of time. He is always with us. We are never apart from him, never for one second. And he gives us and is always giving us exactly what we need. And whatever he ever gave us, he is giving us now. And that is the truth. And we should never forget that. Because there is no, no question. He cannot go. Yogi Bhajan once said um, that uh, after Master Kripal left the body, that he said, those people who say Kripal Singh is dead, I say good luck to them. Because uh, nobody is less dead than Kripal Singh. And that was the truth. And it's still true. It's true of Ajayb Singh, it's true of Sawan Singh. They're not dead. There is no death where they are. You know, they are with us always, and they are our best friends. And that is exactly how we should think of them. This is what the word comforter or advocate means. They are on our side. They understand what it is, why we did what we did, even if it was awful. 
they understand it. It isn't that we are allowed to get away with it, but it's like why we did it and the reasons for it, they work on that level, not on the level of uh, you bad guy, bam. You know, I'll get you. You're going to hell. They don't work like that. That's not the master's way. Not. All right. It is quarter of six. Satsang is over. God bless us all. What's that? Is that coat what he has on you, Sanjis? This is the coat that he gave me, yeah. 1980, January 1980. He said it was, he, he referred to it later too, um, in a talk in 1996 or 7, that he had given it to me. And uh, he said it was a coat that Kripal had given him. So I treasure it. For when I first got it, I couldn't, I wore it everywhere. I wore it to the shopping mall, I wore it to college. <laughs> so I was, I was at the movies one night, I came out and somebody came up to me and said, you're wearing the coat. I said, sure, what else am I gonna wear? <laughs> well, the master's love is unfathomable and what he gives us is a gift forever, so. Whatever it is. All right, God bless us all.